Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and love for us. You are the God of redemption and healing and freedom. And we praise you, God, for the many and various ways in which that freedom has broken into our lives personally in this room. And Father, we just pray that more and more of your redemptive power would be at work in our lives, in our hearts, our imaginations. And so we sit before you today and ask God that by your spirit you would work in our lives through the preaching of your word and that you would change us and make us new. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So hey, if you're joining with us for the first time today, we have been in a series in the Gospel of John, which is one of the first century biographies of the life of Jesus. And we've been looking together at people who encountered Jesus and who in that encounter, their lives were transformed forever. And today we're going to look at one more encounter. Today we're going to look at the encounter that's been actually depicted on this little video bumper that we show you every week. We're going to see Jesus encountering a man who was born blind from birth. And to kind of like prepare us to enter into this text, I wanted to read to you something from a Facebook post from a young woman in our congregation whose name is Dina, who herself is blind. And she created this post on Facebook, which she labeled, quote, a message from blind people, read it with the utmost attention. And what follows then are 11 statements about blindness, and the first is this. She writes, quote, I'm an ordinary person, just blind. You didn't need to raise your voice or address me as if I were a child. Always remember that while I cannot see, I can hear clearly. Talk to me so we can understand each other better. She ends her list of 11 things with this. She says, quote, please make me a part of your world. I also enjoy the same things you do, parties, movies, school competitions. Please let me participate in your activities and you will be surprised that I can be just as fun as the person next to you. Don't think of me as just a blind person. I'm just a person who happens to be blind. You know, as we open up our story, it seems like the disciples have forgotten that this person that Jesus encounters is truly just a person like them because they seem to be marked by a similar kind of insensitivity that many of us can sometimes exude when we're around people who maybe don't have the same experience in life as us. And listen to how the story picks up. Chapter two, or chapter nine, verse one. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples, in the presence of this man, raise a theological question. Jesus, you know, we've seen this guy before, and uh, so, you know, we're just kind of curious, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? And I can just imagine this guy sitting right there, just thinking to himself, listen, idiots, I'm blind, not deaf, and I have feelings just like you, and that's quite frankly hurtful. And they raise this question, and their question reflects a common assumption in the first century that if you were experiencing pain and suffering, it's because you must have done something wrong to deserve it. 
And of course, this isn't a unique assumption to the first century world. Many people in our day still have that assumption. Many people in our churches still have that assumption. Oh, look at where their kids have turned out. They must have done something wrong. Oh, look at what's happening in your life. You must have done something wrong. And this is what they're assuming. You must have done something wrong. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus changes their paradigm, verse three. Jesus says, it was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, they, they, they looked at this man and they saw a theological problem to be solved, but Jesus sees simply a human, another human who's in need. And where the disciples see either a victim, it was his parents' fault, or a sinner, it was the man's fault, Jesus teaches here that this man is rather, this man's suffering and his pain is an arena, it's a stage where God's redemptive healing power can be put on full display. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know, oftentimes it's assumed that God causes the suffering and the pain in our life. And God is not some cosmic genie in the sky who's sort of like moving around pieces on the chessboard and causing a bunch of pain and suffering in people's lives. No, God created the world, a universe that is apart from God, that has its own life and integrity that's broken and fallen in sin. And yet, what Jesus teaches us here is that in spite of the pain and suffering, actually God can use our pain and suffering to display his own redemptive power and glory. And some of you have seen this, haven't you? You know, someone's response was so stunning to the suffering and the pain in, your, in their life that it made your own faith grow. You thought, how could anybody walk through that kind of pain and still hold on to their faith? And it caused your own faith to grow. And just at a very personal level, you know, the faith, the kind of faith that really most inspires me and impresses me, it's not the person whose life is all put together, who comes from generational wealth and, and they have three point or 2.5 children who all get Ivy League degrees and everything in their life is polished and shiny and perfect and they have perfect faith and perfect this and perfect that and they still believe. No, what impresses me are people when the ground falls out from underneath them and the marriage implodes, and they don't even know what's going on with their kids, or their parents get divorced, and they still hold on to their faith. And there are some of you in this room, you inspire me. You inspire me because I see you walk through pain and suffering, and you still believe, you still hold on. And this is what impresses me. You know, Jesus says, this man's pain and suffering can be used as a stage to display my glory. And of course, you know, Jesus' pain and suffering was used for God's redemptive purposes. And some of you have experienced that your pain and suffering has been used for God's redemptive purposes. And it may be for you today. You walked in the room to hear this. Don't waste your pain. God may want to use your pain 
in order to bring glory to himself and to strengthen the faith of people around you. So Jesus looks at this man and he humanizes him. And he says, look, this guy, it's neither. This guy, he, he sees in this man a stage in which God's glory is gonna be revealed. And then he says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Oh, I'm sorry, I gotta move here. <laughs> we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And then he says this, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, the clearest and the brightest light of God, the, the clearest picture of, of the knowledge of the character of God and the love of God, the clearest and brightest light of God you will ever hope to see was on the earth in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is the most of God you will ever hope to see. If you wanna know what God is like, Jesus says, look at me, I am the light of the world. In me, you come underneath the glory of this divine light. Well, having said these things, I like it. Jesus just is always dropping this. You know, they're having this conversation. Jesus says, it's neither him nor his parents that sin, but rather that the glory of God can be revealed. And then he's like, he just drops a little nugget about himself and his glory and his light. And then he turns back and it says, as having said these things, look what happens next. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. <laughs> and then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and he came back seen. And so Jesus inexplicably uh, turns and he spits in the ground. He gets down and he starts to make, make from his saliva mud. And then he takes this mud and he puts it in this man's eyes and he says, go and wash. And we wonder, what on earth is Jesus doing in this moment? Spit dirt in his eyes? And you kind of wonder, what was this guy doing in this situation? You know, did the disciples have to hold him down while Jesus put the mud in his eyes? You know, um, did he know what was going on? Did he know how the mud was made? But what's up with the saliva and the mud? Well, some have supposed that maybe Jesus is giving us an echo in this story back to the original story in creation when God fashioned the original creature from the dirt and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And maybe in this story where God's new creation, his new kingdom is breaking into the world through Jesus, God here is uh, once again using dirt in order to bring about new creation and new life and sight. But then maybe on the other hand, maybe Jesus is just being a bit cheeky. You see, a little bit later, we're gonna learn that Jesus performs this miracle on guess which day, class? The Sabbath. He's always doing this stuff on the Sabbath. And he decides on this occasion to do something that would be a clear violation of the stipulations regarding Sabbath that the Pharisees had. And what did the stipulation? Well, you know, it wasn't enough that we had one law, you shall not do any labor on the Sabbath. That left way too much up for question. Well, what constitutes labor? 
And so they filled in that blank with the Talmud that gave 39 different categories of work that constituted labor you could not do on Sabbath. And among the type of work you couldn't do on Sabbath is you couldn't need K-N-E-A-D, need. And what does Jesus do here? He spits on the ground and he kneads the mud. And then he puts, he is violating the Sabbath. Well, that's going to come up later. So the man goes, he, he puts the mud in his eyes. And it's interesting, he's not immediately healed. He's got to take a step of faith. He's got to do something that almost everyone who ever commits themselves to Jesus has to do. They have to believe the word of one they have not yet seen with their own eyes. And they've got to walk in in faithful obedience to what he has asked. So the man gets up and he goes where he is sent. And look what happens next. He comes back and he, he comes back seen, you know. And he returns back to his neighborhood, back to his little place, maybe near where he was begging. He goes back. And he sees his neighbors, and look what it says. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And some said, no. Or or some said, "Um, uh, it's it's he, some said. And others said, no, but it's like him. But he kept saying, no, I'm the man. (laughs) I just like that. You know, some are saying, is it him? Is it not him? Who is it? And he's like, it's me, you know? And they said, well, then how were your eyes opened? And so they're all questioning, how did this miracle occur? And so they brought the man to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, so that they might comment on maybe how this whole thing took place. You know, they should know. And so they brought him to the Pharisees, or they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. Standing before their eyes is a man who had been healed of his blindness. They have a living embodiment of the very healing power of God standing right in front of their eyes. And yet they fail to see the obvious. The only thing they can ask is, how can somebody break our Sabbath rules? And they rush to a snap judgment that is spoken with no curiosity and no humility and with absolute certitude. Oftentimes, religious people find themselves speaking in snap judgments with no curiosity, no humility, and with absolute certitude. He says, this man is not from God. How can a sinner do such signs. And there was a division among them, and they said again to the blind man, well, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And the man says, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Can't you see? He's a prophet. 
Now, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. By the way, when it says the Jews there, it's always referring in John's gospel to the Jewish authorities and leaders. As a matter, or as a, just a point of clarification, everybody in this story is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. His disciples are a Jew. The man born blind from birth is a Jew. And so the Jewish leaders, the authorities, the Pharisees, did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So they're, they're just thinking to themselves, this man has acted outside of our God box. And our little God box, you don't break our little interpretation of the Sabbath. And this man has broken our interpretation of the Sabbath, so there must be some other explanation. He's not from God, he's a sinner, and... Um, Maybe the man wasn't really born blind. So let's go and let's ask his parents and let's get verification that this man was born blind. And look what happens next. They ask his parents and his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. (laughs) But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. (laughs) Now, his parents, no doubt, knew how his eyes were opened. The man had told his neighbors, the man put mud in my eyes and I went and washed and now I see. And maybe he even mentioned that it was this man named Jesus who he believed to be a prophet. But the parents feign ignorance. And I think what happens here is they lack some moral courage to speak truth in the presence of people who might punish them for speaking the truth. It says his parents said these things because they feared the religious leaders. For, it says this, for the religious leaders had already decided, stop there. I want you just to notice this phrase, for the religious leaders had already decided. The religious leaders do something here that maybe some of you have been guilty of. You already decided you, you already know. You don't need somebody else to come and correct you or to give you new information. You have your presuppositions and your assumptions about reality. You have already made up your mind. You don't need any new knowledge. And the religious leaders had already decided something about Jesus And so they had already decided that if someone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they should be put out of the synagogue. And therefore, his parents said to him, he's of age, ask him. So now they go back to the man. They're like, okay, I guess he was born blind. We got to have more conversation. And so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. It's interesting, isn't it, how much these religious leaders know, how much they think they see, while all the while they have no idea what they don't know. So the second time they called the man who had been born blind and they said, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. And he answered, look, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Don't you just love that? 
He says, I, I don't know everything there is to know. And listen, some of you, you know, you might be investigating Christianity and maybe, you know, you, you, you've kind of, you, you've been in this place where there's just stuff you don't understand and stuff you don't know. You don't need to know everything to begin a journey with Jesus. And this man, he begins where with, with what he knows. And what does he know? What he knows is I once was blind and now I see. And some of you, you're like, look, I can't explain everything. I don't have all of your answers, but I know this. I was addicted and now I'm free. You know, my marriage was imploding and now it's healed. You know, I was locked in crippling anxiety and now I'm free. I, I, was, I was stuck. I was stuck, absorbed in myself, and now I have meaning and purpose. I once was blind and now I see. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, look, I told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And now he starts getting cheeky himself. He's like, do you also want to become his disciple? <laughs> and they answered him, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know. Notice again, they keep professing what they know, what they think they see. He says, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And I love this man's response. He says, why, this is an amazing thing. Now he just starts to get bold. And he just gets up in their, their face. And he's like, oh, this is, this is an amazing thing. You know, you don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened up my eyes. He says, look, we know. He says, you've talked about what you know. I'll talk to you about something that I think we can all agree on. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And look, since the world began, it has, been, it has, been heard, it has never been heard that anyone, that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And it's a pretty logical argument and it's grounded in good biblical exegesis. In the Old Testament, there is no example of a man born blind who was healed. But in the Gospels, the most common category of miracle is healing from blindness. Something distinct and unique has broken into the world in this Jesus. And so he has this rational, logical argument. It's kind of like one of these mic drop moments, like, boom. What are you gonna do with that? And they answer in a way that most of us had answered at one point in our life when we know somebody had leveled a good argument against us that we couldn't answer. What do you do? You just resort to name calling, don't you? Or you make fun of their mom or something, you know? And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Isn't it interesting, these religious leaders who are so certain, so confident in their knowledge of the Bible, so absolute in their definitive opinions about what they see happening out there, and yet they are completely wrong. And notice how they treat this guy. They just say, look, you were born in utter sin. 
You're blind and you deserve it. And your parents were probably sinners too, and they deserve to have a son who was born blind, who was on the side of the road begging. And then they excommunicate him. They kick him out of the synagogue. Well, after this man has been kicked out, Jesus hears of it, and he goes back and he welcomes him back in to his own family. Jesus heard that he had cast him, that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said this, do you believe in the son of man? Son of man is a messianic title taken from the book of Daniel. It's a title that applies to the one whom God gives all authority and power in heaven on earth over all creation. And he says, do you believe in the son of man? And the man answered, well, who is he that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him. You who were formerly blind have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he, fall, and he fell down and he worshiped him. And then Jesus closes off this whole story. This is such a good story, isn't it? He closes off the story by drawing out its main point. He says, for judgment I have come in to the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but get this. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now I wanna just stand back and make two simple observations about this story. Two things that I think this story is intended to do in our own lives. And number one, what I think this story is doing is number one, it's alerting us to the danger of spiritual blindness. This story is alerting us to the danger of spiritual blindness. Now there's a distinction between sight and insight. There's a distinction from seeing and actually seeing. And have you ever had that experience where you were blind to something in your own life? And then at one point, somebody opened your eyes to it and you're like, oh, I had no idea. I can still remember back when Alicia and I were still dating. I, I remember there was one time where uh, we had been out at some youth event or something like that. And I had gotten in a debate or an argument with somebody and we came back and Alicia just said to me, you know, when you were talking back there, and sometimes you do this, you talk in a way that you, you present like you know more about something than you actually know. I was like, I gotta marry this woman because <laughs> I need that kind of feedback. And so do you, right? We need people in our life who will open our eyes to things that we oftentimes are blind to. There's a difference between sight and insight. And of course, the Pharisees had some sight. They saw some things. They knew some things. They read some things. They studied some things in God's word. They were very religious. They were very knowledgeable. They lived very religious and pious and upright lives, and yet they were blind to the healing power of God in flesh and embody right in the middle of them. And this should alert us, all of us in this room, 
to the danger of spiritual blindness. You know, it's easy to think sometimes about the Pharisees as simply almost like when they walk into the room, the soundtrack of Darth Vader goes on, you know, Dun, 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 you know, because we perceive them to be self-righteous hypocrites, the worst embodiment of what, you know, religion can do to people. But let's just remember that that's not how they viewed themselves, and that's not how the people around them viewed them. They viewed themselves as being the ones who held on to the truth and who were the very light of God in the midst of a very dark pagan world around them that was going to hell in a handbasket. And yet all the while, they remained blind. And notice in the text what kept them from seeing. Down in verse 40, he says, because you say we see, you remain in your blindness. And do you know what that statement is, we see? I think it's capturing in a nutshell the problem of spiritual pride, of thinking you know more than you know, of being the kind of person who makes absolute assertions and snap judgments and you're quick to contend, c- condemn And yet you are so blind to the stuff in your own heart and life. You are blind to the redemptive work that God is doing in surprising ways, sometimes outside of your own box that is right in our midst all the time. And so he puts us on notice against the danger of spiritual blindness. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know, it is true. When you come to know Jesus, your eyes are opened and you do come to know the truth, and I don't think we need to walk around pretending like we're simply blind and don't know anything. By God's grace, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have come to know that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine, and yet in Christ you are more loved than you ever dared hope. And this good news has begun to change your life. You have come to see and know who Jesus is. And so to come to faith in Jesus is to come out of the dark and into sight. And yet, shouldn't the fact that we were once blind and our eyes were opened by the miracle of Jesus' touch, shouldn't that make us the least proud, the least condescending, the most humble, the best listeners, the most gracious people in all of our society? Shouldn't we be the least quick to make snap judgments about other people? Shouldn't it make us want to be the kind of people who understand before we seek to be understood? Or do we have everything all figured out? I think that the, the, the danger of spiritual blindness should call us into deep lives of humility and openness to God confessing all of the ways in which maybe we don't know as much as we thought we knew. But not only in this text do we see the danger of spiritual blindness, I think in this story we see an invitation into a path of spiritual sight. And what I want you to notice is that this story there's this movement in the life of this man. He goes from being blind to seeing, and then he moves from a place of spiritual blindness in some ways to greater and greater levels of sight. And it's gradual. Uh, at first, he, he says, this man 
came from God. And then he says, he is a prophet. And then finally, it reaches to a climax where he says, he is the son of man. He is the son of God. And he falls down and he worships him. And he says, I believe. But notice where the path to spiritual sight begins. It was initiated by Jesus himself. And our journey from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight is initiated by Jesus. I can remember years ago when we were still living in Albuquerque. One day we had some neighbors across the street over and this one particular neighbor was a, he had a PhD in postmodern, 19th century postmodern German literature. And he was a real thoughtful, interesting guy. And we were talking about God around our living room with all of the neighbors. And this guy just said, look, he says, I don't know how anyone can profess to know anything about God if there is one. I mean, there, think about the billions of stars in our galaxy and think about the billions and billions of galaxies in our universe. And here we are, little finite specks of dust on a speck of dust revolving around a ball of fire. How can we know anything about God, about the divine? That's an incredibly good question, isn't it? And you know, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, he thought about that question a lot. And in this essay called The Seeing Eye, he said this, he said, you know, he says, think about a, a, a Hamlet play. He said, if Hamlet and Shakespeare were to ever meet, it would have to be at Shakespeare's doing because Hamlet could initiate nothing, right? And so too with us, if we would ever know God, it would have to be at God's initiative. And the fundamental claim of Christianity is that God has initiated his own disclosure of his love to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we want to know God, God has come among us. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has fully disclosed him to us. You know, it's okay to be wrong about some things, right? Some of you don't believe that. But it's okay to be wrong, isn't it? And it's okay to grow in your knowledge and later to realize how wrong you were before. I mean, think about how you dressed 20 years ago. And think about how you thought 20 years ago. And almost all of us realize as well, I thought and dressed and said a bunch of stupid things. And look, if you did it then, how do you think you're doing today? Listen, it's okay to not know, it's okay to all be learning, but I think we could all agree on this. It's not okay not to look if there's something to be seen. And what John's gospel tells us again and again and again is that in Jesus, there is something to be seen. Have you taken time in humility to look and to investigate and to explore? This knowledge 
of God's spiritual sight was initiated by Jesus. And I'll close with this. It, it began with a step of faith. You know, I was doing a little bit of reading about the pool of Siloam where Jesus sent this man to wash. And it turns out it's, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a distance from where Jesus was. In fact, this man had to walk down a very, very long staircase. This pool has been excavated in Jerusalem today. And it was a very large pool. People would wash in it before they went to the temple to worship. And so you actually had to take quite a bit of a journey and go downstairs in order to get there. And this man doesn't get his sight until he washes down in that pool. And so before he got his sight, he had to take a step, didn't he? And I think it's challenging us in this way. Listen, whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus is continually urging us and he's inviting us to take a step of faith and to keep taking that next step in our faith journey. And for some of you, that next step might simply be to do a little bit more homework and investigation. And we, in in the next month or two, we're gonna be offering something called an alpha course. And we would invite you to get involved in that so that you can explore who Jesus is. For some of you, your next step might be to actually come and profess your faith publicly in the waters of baptism. It is... Not an accident that the early church in the catacombs, uh, one of the most depicted pictures uh, associated with baptism is this one. Because what does Jesus tell him to do? He says, go and get washed. And after you come to faith, the very first thing Jesus calls you to do is to publicly profess your faith in the waters of baptism. That might be your next step. And maybe you've been following Jesus for a very long time and maybe your next step and certainly my next step in my journey of greater and greater sight into the beauty and glory of Jesus might simply be to reckon with and do a fierce investigation of those pockets of blindness in my own soul that erupt in my snap judgments and my rude words and my immediate dismissal of other people and my absolutist, overly confident statements about everything. But what's your next step you need to take? Jesus is encouraging us. He says, go, get up and walk by faith and move forward in this journey of spiritual insight and discovery. You know, we're gonna close out our service today by sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And I wanna invite our band to come up And as we, prayer, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I just had a couple words I want to say. One is, if you didn't receive the Lord's Supper when you walked in, uh, you can just lift up your hand and Kathy and Carol are in the back and they'll come and they'll bring it to you uh, and make sure that you have the bread and the cup. The second is this, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, what we're about to do next, it, feels, it might feel a little strange. You're like, wow, this is an awkward ritual. Don't feel pressured to participate in this if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. But what I would encourage you to do in this space is contemplate before the face of God what your next step of faith might need to be. 
You know, maybe it's simply just opening yourself up again. And I'm not trying to make this a heavy pressure thing. You know, if you're new and you're like, I just walked in, I was invited here. And uh, listen, can I just encourage you in this next space just to open up your heart to God and say, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. Or maybe you're in a place right now and you're like, you know, like there's something deep inside of you that says this is right and true. And the next step is you need to actually get up and take a step. And I would encourage you during this next song just to cry out to God and say, Jesus, save me, open my eyes. And the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved by a simple cry of faith. But the last thing I want to say about the Lord's Supper is, you know, the thing about spit and mud and that visceral experience of rubbing it on this man's eyes is it's all just so earthy, isn't it? And these elements, spit, it seems something we throw, you know, some of us spit on the side of the road and it just, it seems worthless. It's trash, it's cast out. And dirt, we just walk on it. These are the lowest of elements. And perhaps maybe one thing that Jesus wants to communicate to us is that it is by the eternal and infinite God coming among us and getting very earthy and physical and coming among us as the servant of all and dying the death of a common slave, one who would ordinarily be cast out as refuse. God, by entering into weakness, broke the power of sin and death so that in this stunning act of selfless love, he might bring our redemption and healing and bring us spiritual sight. Let's pray together. God, as we prepare to share in the bread and the cup, we just ask God that you would open our eyes afresh today so that we could see you afresh in your beauty. Help those who in here just need to take another step of faith. God, I just pray that you would enable us to do that here and now. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, amen.